Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. My name is Adam Reeks, otherwise known as... The son of a sack of white trash! It's our 100th episode, and joining me today is everybody's favourite pastor... James David Manning. I'm the Lord's servant. I'm the sodomite slayer. I'm the Lord's servant. I'm the Lord's servant. Welcome back to the show. If you thought that AIDS was bad... You ain't seen nothing yet! Well, this show is certainly not for everyone. Um, I understand that. Look, let's talk about charity. You called me a couple of weeks ago with a prophecy. I got a word from you. I got a word of knowledge, a word of prophecy. And I want you, preacher, to use this word of prophecy ever, whithersoever you go. And that's exactly what we did. We joined forces. James came on episode 99 of this show and God asked us to help raise $5,000 to get him back on his feet. This is the prophecy of Almighty God! Now, the consequences of not fulfilling this prophecy were pretty severe, weren't they? You're going to have a flame shooting out of your vagina. Well, if that won't get you motivated, nothing will. Otherwise, the consequence will not be pretty. So you and I set our sights on raising some funding for a disabled war veteran. I promoted it on social media while you continued to preach God's word. How did that go for you? I got the penis in my mouth. Positive outcome. You're going to see it. It's going to be a wonder to behold. So it's still in there. You ain't seen nothing yet until you see the flaming butthole. So you're literally packing heat. When that penis comes out, the flame will start burning. Uh-huh. Thus saith the Lord God Almighty to every sodomite. And to every sodomite sympathizer. You've endured all of this just to help raise some cash for someone you've never met. You think what the members can do to you by not giving money to support the church. All right, go on then. Let's have a look. Right there. It'll burn and burn and burn. Now, I'm not a doctor, but at a guess I'd say that's gone gangrenous. Got to have special asbestos diapers. Pastor Dr. James David Manning from Outlaw World Ministries, thanks for coming on the 100th episode and enduring God's punishment to help a stranger. Amen. So what did God actually say to you before this happened? Preach up! You won't be able to sit down! Any final philosophical highbrow thoughts? Penis... Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic non-weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. This is a listener-supported show and you can help boost quality and quantity at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and then click on support. Your contribution makes all the difference for the show and 10% of it goes to women in developing countries. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. And it's time to meet our guests. Hello? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. It's episode 100 and joining us... Well, released from hospital, we've got James. How are you, sir? I, I am very well. I uh, actually have been out of the hospital for a couple of days now. They, they let me AMA on t- Tuesday or Wednesday. I, I'm not sure sure which, but I'm I'm in I'm in good shape. That is fantastic to hear. There's so much good news to talk about. What what happened? I mean, when you last came on the show, you were living in a car. Things weren't looking very good. But it actually went a bit downhill after you came on the last episode. Yeah, yeah, I got bumped by a, an elderly gentleman in a uh, Dodge truck. I put his hood ornament into my arm, which not no big thing. 
And uh, I was trying to, he was all panicky and upset, of course. And I'm, I'm trying to tell him, you know, don't worry, don't call, call an ambulance. Don't, don't, don't like hospitals and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I tried to walk away and discovered I couldn't do, do that. My hip had been uh, dis- dislocated. So that needless to say, they took me to the hospital against my will. And um, uh, <laughs> this is irrelevant, but, but it was funny. The, the doc actually had to climb up on the t- tape, tape, the you know, the table, bed, whatever you call it, call it to pop my hip, hip back in. And oh. he got it in there, and I tried leaving. And they're like, uh, no, you're not, not leaving. And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. And so... They threatened to slap a set uh, seventy-two hour men- mental health hold on me if I insisted. So I shut up and sat back and leaned into the inevitable. And uh, well, long story short, it turned out I had a real bad lung inf- infection, uh, some kind of MRSA or SMR or something Staff. like that. Mm-hmm. And a partially collapsed lung, so they drained drained it, put me on oxygen, and. Uh, metric crap crap ton of, of 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 meds and uh now i'm ready to pin years back on a, a gun dark i'm i'm doing i'm doing re- really well and i'm not living in fiona anymore uh the lady i think i mentioned her to you uh rebecca she works at a pizza place down from the mcdonald's uh she started talking to me asked what was going on I, I was, you know, real, real honest about it and just told her. And so long story short, I'm, I'm staying in her spare, spare room. Uh, so I'm not living in Fiona anymore. Mm. My, my board and going to be, instead of heading right straight, straight back to Oregon, I'm staying here for, it's either eight, eight to ten, 10 weeks or 10, 10 to 12. I, I honestly can't remember off the top of my head, but at, at the hospital, they got me hooked up with a, uh, Support group and treatment for uh, severe PTSD, and uh, so I figured that that would pro- probably be a good idea. T- tighten up a screw or two that's obviously work loose. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a roundabout way, I mentioned yeah, this to you before I'll- that maybe it's the best thing to have been hit by a car, as cruel as it sounds. Yeah, yeah, actually, actually, it was. It it, it really did work out well. Um, one of those uh, blessing in disguise, I guess they call it. <laughs> but, uh, oh. yeah, it really did work amaz- amazingly well, and because of you and, and John. But the 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 go 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 me uh, go goal was met uh, yesterday. Actually, I believe, believe it uh, actually met the goal, and I, I really want to. Thank you, and, and of course, all, all of uh, every, everyone who donated, and all of your listeners. And I've met—well, not met, but you know—email some some really wonderful people, and I just—it's changed my whole outlook. And I'm, I'm doing better emotion, emotionally and, and physically, and I'm feeling a lot, a lot better. And that's not in small part. Because it will almost exclusively be because of you, and I just I can't can't thank you enough, Adam. Adam. Um, no, I I appreciate the thanks. It's it's the listeners. They really kicked the tin when we passed it around. You you mentioned wanting to thank everybody. I've got a little something in the bank. The one person in particular really 
came to the party just at the very end there. His name's Henry, and he kicked the tin for $400 just to get us over the line. So just as a little special treat, uh, no illusions from the scathing atheist. Uh, he's brought his four lungs to the party. Noah, take a deep breath. A deep breath indeed, sir. I dare say your listeners are almost too generous. Not quite, but almost. So it's all about the arrangement. You just got to get it as close to iambic as possible. So here we go. We would like to offer a very sincere thanks to... <sighs> Bevan, Andrew, Ash, Luella, Rachel, Frankie, Travis, Christy, Rhoda, Joseph, Rasmus, Jim, Jen, Aaron, Ethan, Ivan, Jurgen, Duncan, Shannon, Jason, Kristen, Roman, Stephen, Philip, Matthew, Emma, Richard, Thomas, Keith, Todd, Cliff, Bruce, Dane, Dan, Don, Matt, Mark, Mick, Mark, Mike, Mark, Henry, Harry, Gary, Glenn, Brittany, Liam, Leah, Sarah, Sally, Paul, John, Joe, John, Michael, Emily, Isabel, Donovan, Jessica, Adrian, E. Renee, Taylor, Steve, Tyler, Lee, Robert, Richard, Ryan, Warwick, Terry, Lee, Paul, Wendy, Paul, Wendy, Simone, Chris, Jeff, Sky, Phil, Chris, Rob, Wayne, Phil, Chris, Jeff, John, Joel, Chris, Sean, Emmy, Noel, David, 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 the Crash, Dummy, and the Yorkshire Atheist, not to mention all the people that bought the song. Whew. Turns out all that time I spent in college trying to expand my lung capacity can be used for the powers of good after all. Who'd have thunk? Back to you, Adam. <laughs> that was actually oh, a recording. That was incredible. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, if you and I, I speak quite slowly on the show and, uh, well, you're <laughs> and then you're a step further than that. I mean, if we were doing it, that would have taken a week. No, 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 no kidding. Wow. But, yeah, wow. <laughs> He's going to need to oxygen after that. <laughs> <laughs> so just to recap there, you were hit by a car by an elderly gentleman. Uh, the hood ornament went through your arm, tore some of the muscle away. You were hospitalized. They picked up a whole bunch of other ailments. So collapsed lung, MRSA, so on and so forth. But you're out. I haven't heard you cough yet. I'm not even no, sure well, it's you. Actually, I did a couple of minutes more, but it's minor. And just just to be fair, the, the, the ornament wouldn't have done as much damage as it did, except I kind of panicked and ripped my arm off of it. I, I don't know how they, how they set up in, in Australia, but here the, the Dodge trucks have like a little ram's head on them with horns. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, that, that, that <laughs> didn't go real well. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but yeah, no big deal. Yeah, it would have been uh, much better had you been hit by, say, a Kia. <laughs> yeah, or, 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 or a car or something. But then I pro- probably would have totaled it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm keeping score. That's but, only one yeah. cough so far. <laughs> You've also been offered some accommodation locally. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm staying with uh, that, that lady who... Uh, she works in a pizza place down, down the road from the McDonald's that I was scrounging at. Uh, she stopped one day and asked me why I was sitting in a snow snowstorm outside the building, and I was like, "Well, I'm tra- charging my my phone." And she says, "Well, you know, why why are you doing that?" Blah blah blah. And long, long story short, I am now now staying with her. So, yay yay! That's super cool. Uh, nothing, you don't not, nothing in proper. I'm I'm in a you know another room, but I got a roof over 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 my head again. That's fantastic. So yes. And, and, it, it is. and now when you go traveling, you're also able to charge stuff because you also got that solar charger that I sent through. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, at, at first, I could, couldn't figure out how to plug it in. And then I realized your plugs are different. So it took me about oh, 30 seconds to, to bypass that little problem. And it, it works wonderful. I, I actually charged up my, my phone today with it. Fantastic. When I did the last episode, I had a bit of an outpouring of 
support in one way or another. That, that a lot of it was financial, as we just heard from Noah. A lot of it was... I had no idea that we had so many war veterans who listened to the show, but there are about half a dozen of them. I'd like to thank them all. They they all contacted and offered to help in terms of paperwork, in terms of support networks and so forth. And during the car accident, your laptop got destroyed. True. Yeah. And so I put an email back to these guys and, and said, look, if you've got a spare laptop lying around, would you mind sending it over to James? And somebody came to the party. I think his name was Tim. So thank you, Tim. Yes, yes. He, uh, as a matter of fact, he and I have been e- emailing back and forth repeatedly, and uh, he's, I, I dare say we're becoming uh, friends, and he's going to get that out really soon. And I'm, I'm again, I just I'm overwhelmed with the, the amount of gener- generosity and, and kindness that I, I truly gotten to the point where I didn't think anybody g- gave gave a poop, <laughs> and uh, I'm just <laughs> I, I tr- truly am just overwhelmed. I just don't know, don't, 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 don't know how else to say it. With the GoFundMe campaign, you're actually able to take some of the money before the campaign expired. So they did a partial payout to you. Yeah, yes, sir. What, uh, what have you done with that money Fiona, so far? Actually, I, I, I picked up Fiona today, and it was both less and more than expected. In, when you and I talked, the guy had uh, estimated around thirty-two, thirty-three, and it, instead it turned out to be two thousand two thousand eight hundred seventy-four dollars and sixty-four cents. <laughs> so, so I was very, very happy about that. So you now have a functioning car. So, the owner is the name of your car, by the way. Yeah, yes, the owner of the Ford. <laughs> but uh, yes, sir. she she is now running and pur- purring like a kitten again. You've got about oh. Let's average it out. About 10 weeks left in Manitowoc? Manitowoc? <laughs> yes, yes, sir. Manitowoc. Man- <laughs> I'll get that right one day. you got your PTSD treatment underway. Yes, yes, sir. There's a little bit of more good news. So the guys, particularly Eli over at uh, God Awful Movies and The Scathing Atheist, they've decided to sell one of their songs called God's Not Dead might insert it into this show if uh, if I can get the rights to it. And sales of that song, it's only a dollar. I bought a copy. The proceeds from that will also be coming to your fundraiser. I, 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 I don't... I, it, it's unseemly to make, make an old man cry, Adam. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I've been asked about, because the correspondence I've had from the listeners on this has been quite a lot and uh, and very touching... Everyone asks about Shadow. She she is doing well. Matter of fact, I I just a uh, few few minutes before 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 you called, sent sent you a picture of she. Uh, Rebecca has a cat that's never seen a dog and or lived lived with one. And Shadow and I, of course, live, live without anybody else. And so the the two of them are are like very guard guardedly getting getting along and Sh- Shadow. Decided she wanted the cat cat's heated bed, and the cat, the cat's like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> so the two of them were curled up real tight together, and it was just so so adorable. I just I had to share it. So, uh-huh. well, so hopefully you'll put that in your inbox. So. <laughs> I might stick that out on the social media. Everyone wants to know. When when did Shadow stay while you were in hospital? Because you're in hospital for about a week, weren't you? Yeah, uh, she stayed with Rebecca. She, uh, she came down and, and at first they were going to put her in the Humane Society. And I'm like, no, that, that, that's no wrong. Uh-uh. I, I don't give a damn darn what, what, no, 
<laughs> and uh, so just as a, a not knowing what, what else to do, I, I called her and she said, certainly I'd, I'd be happy to take take care of her. And she, she obviously took good, good care of her. I think uh, Shadow probably gained, gained half a pound, but... <laughs> <laughs> A better diet for your dog than McDonald's burgers. There, there you go. That's that's what she's been pretty much eating, eating all the time. But now she's on uh, you know regular food, and it, she's doing wonderfully. She she really is. Matter of fact, she even had a, a large sebaceous cyst on her uh, chest, and uh, Re- 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 Rebecca got that treated and removed. So oh, wow! I was absolutely staggered by that. But, oh, that's so amazing. She's she's doing. Super well. Well, Rebecca, thank you very much for extending the support to James. I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but uh, you've done a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I have made sure she knows I'm very, very appreciative, and I, I will tell her you are as well. So you're back on track, James. How's it feel? Yeah, I'm. I'll be honest. Honest with you, I had pretty much. If, if I hadn't had had Shadow, I pro- probably would have taken a, a long, long swim off a short, short pier, but. I'm feeling hopeful and and good good about things, and I, I got to admit I'm more more than a little ner- nervous about the the you know somebody getting in there with a screw screwdriver and tightening down the, the mental screw screws. But even that, I'm I'm hopeful and looking forward to, and I, I just I feel so so much much better. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm not the most articulate guy on the world, but I I, I just it. It's renewed my, renewed my hope. It, it, it's made me re- realize there are truly decent, decent people. You know, I, I know it sounds cliched, but, but I honestly kind of figured, you know, no, nobody gave, gave a damn and, and arms, excuse me. And, and, and uh, I, I know yours isn't explicit. And, and, and uh, you know, it was like, yeah, I, I, you know, I served and then now there's, nothing left for me to give no no nobody wants nothing nobody wants me you know i mean i i, I felt thrown away I, I guess that was the way to put it but i feel much different now and i tru- truly am, am grateful not not only especially to you obviously and john and and all, all the folks folks that, that, that donated i just i, I can't thank all, all of you enough i for, for what it's worth, if, if anything, I'm truly greatly grateful. That's all we need. Yeah. We're happy with that. <laughs> Let's switch for a tick and talk about religion, because that was one of the things I mentioned in the last episode. In your previous situation, you were getting three solid meals a week. Where were they coming from? Uh, there, there's a mission that you, you have to listen to a 90-minute sermon, and then they give you, you know, a tray of food. And you know, I actually... I, I, Pretty sure you you must have seen it. Uh, you know, I was saying I wrote, wrote a an, e- uh, an email to se- several folks just saying, you know, I'm gen- genuinely ashamed to be an atheist because there, there's no s- similar type of concern or or, or for, for lack of better term charity or whatever. And it seemed like the only 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 folks who actually were willing to help were the, were the re- religious folk, and uh, that 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 kind of that didn't that didn't set set real well. We didn't mention it last time. I, it didn't sit quite right with me either, because it was it was charity with strings. Yeah, well, you know, beat, beat the heck out of not, nothing. That's true. So I don't know. That's that's a moral dilemma for another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sir. So how is the? I mean, what what you do with the money from here going forward is 
is none of our business. But how do you think it's going to get you back on track? Oh, well, I, I got Fiona fixed. And uh, as soon as I complete this uh, therapy thing and whatever, um, I'm going to be hauling my car carcass back to Oregon. And it, things are looking up. It, it, it truly has gotten me back back on my on my feet well, obviously financially but in so, so many other ways that honestly I didn't even realize I needed like giving up and the hope and I, I'm sounding stupid I, I'm, I'm shutting up now <laughs> I'm just curious there's no there's no right and wrong answer but yeah I just for the record I, I am absolutely not not going to uh, betray anyone's trust or, or generosity by going out for a party or anything, all the money is being used either for to, well medical supplies or or to get Fiona fixed. That's where most of it went, and the rest is is not not getting touched until I leave, and that's for stri- strictly for gas. Yeah, I, I, I would absolutely never never betray the the trust and the generosity and hmm. kindness of. I, I don't think going. I don't think anyone would mind if you went out and bought. Something not like a new dress, maybe something pretty. <laughs> a, a new what? <laughs> a new skirt. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and some frilly pink underwear, under underwear to go with it too, right? Why not? <laughs> but in the long term, James. <laughs> ah, this is this is why we shouldn't laugh on this show. So, but in the long term. There's got to be some sustainability, and and where are you at at the moment with insurance? Well, I, I the the gentleman, I, matter matter of fact, about now I thought that's who who was calling calling at first. Uh, the ge- gentleman that he, he bumped me, I bumped bumped him, whoever. But either way, his uh, automobile uh, policy is going to cover those medical medical bills, and uh, I've accepted the offer of some of your. Uh, with, with listeners and getting help with getting my, my paperwork re-squared squared away and getting my uh, military disability pension back in track. And so things are, I mean, I, there's been no pro- progress yet. You know how, how, how governments are, mm-hmm. but things are, are definitely looking up. So yeah, I, I, I think I can get that squared away in a, reasonable amount of time and then i'm 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 getting pretty much squared away good to go yeah, yes sir fantastic james i really do appreciate you coming back on you sound a million times better you really do i i feel that way i i really do and and it's like i like i said it's because because of you and, and your listeners and and I, I don't know how to repay the debt I, I owe, but I will figure something else. Like, oh, just, you know, get a Twitter account and say hi from time to time. That'll do. <laughs> and a special <laughs> thanks to, to John at Quiet Atheist, or The Quiet Atheist, I think. Uh, John yeah, came on yeah. the previous episode. He was one of the other driving forces here. So cheers to John. Yes, he, he is a, a very, very kind and, and for, for somebody somebody who's so 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 soft-spoken, he's, he's got a... A solid back backbone on him. He makes up his mind. I just got to end of that. So, <laughs> but I'm I'm genuinely. I keep repeating myself, but I just I don't know how else how else to say it. I am genuinely thankful to you and him and 
everyone that's been involved in this. As not, not just those who just gave money, but like I said, there's been some that have reached out just, you know, like just exchanging emails and being friendly and give, giving me someone someone to talk to and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. A lot of people weren't able to donate. You know, they're, they're in a tough spot themselves, but they retweeted it to their followers, you know, spread the word, and we thank everyone. So, James, all the very best in the future. It's great to hear you back on your feet. Maybe mm, as things progress, maybe send me an email or record a little piece of audio and let us know how you're getting on. Of course, and uh, I, I I don't mean to be presumptuous or or or, or a more more of a pain in the tush than usual, but I, I would like to stay in touch. I I consider you to be a friend, and I hope I be a a friend friend to you. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> Likewise, yeah, you've been so cautious. <laughs> uh, some some of the emails you you've written, everything is sir, and <laughs> I've never been called sir in my life. Until I met you. <laughs> Would you prefer ma'am? <laughs> so, James, all the best in the future and look forward to speaking to you sometime soon. Yes, sir. And, and thank you again, everyone, and especially you and you and, and, and John and Noah. And thank you. Thank you. This is a message specifically for Subject H, which stands for human, who was on this podcast, The Herd Mentality, a few episodes ago. But it's not only for her. It's for all people on this planet that live in a place where free thought is not allowed, or at the very least, not accepted socially. I'm an atheist, and I used to live in Guam, where the majority of the population is Christian. I began my time as a mostly closeted atheist for fear of what would happen to me if I came out. I feared being ostracized, feared losing my job in the public sector, and feared for the lives of my family. For four years, I felt like you, Subject H, but obviously, since Guam is a U.S. territory, I was more or less safe for the most part to express my views. At some point, I decided to say, fuck being scared. Fuck it. I cannot live this lie anymore. The religious right isn't scared of me and doesn't play fairly, so why should I show them fear? When after all, I'm defending the logical worldview of science and reason. The correct worldview, if you will. We are right. They are wrong. I began by writing letters to the local newspaper, which routinely published frivolous pro-religion nonsense. I took to social media, and I even began attending public church services and protests to speak out against the con artists who had come to the island to fleece the susceptible, gullible locals with their, quote, miracle healing. I made some waves speaking out against religion publicly, and here's what I learned. We need more people doing this. One person is not enough. We need you, Subject H. We need you and everyone within the sound of my voice to speak up, speak out, and speak against the greatest scourge affecting our world right now, which is religion. The religious right will continue to lie to the least intelligent. They will continue to steal from the poorest people on the planet, and they will continue to aggressively indoctrinate others, because that is how they keep themselves rich and in power. Once I began to live free, without concern for the religiousness of the world, without fear of stepping on toes, and learn the proper and intelligent way to have a worthwhile discussion about the validity of my atheistic standpoint, my life drastically improved. And guess what? I was no longer alone. People did begin to come to my aid and stand with me. People responded quite positively, actually. No longer was I the silent, fuming minority. I was doing something, and it felt right. Here's the tricky part. You are not in the same situation as me. You are not free. But you are not helpless. I would advise the following strategy. 
Subject H, bide your time. You are not in a position to step out of your closet just yet. However, you can be arming yourself, and I'm sure that you already are armed with the knowledge and evidence that makes being an atheist so satisfying. The wonderful nature of our existence is a lot to ponder. Take time to do that. Really dive into your philosophy and figure it out, because we need you. When the time is right, you will emerge as a fully developed, intelligent, free-thinking adult, and there will be no stopping you. You will join with us and help us fight against the repression and injustice, the outdated and the outdated needless ideals of religion. You will help us. You are already helping us just by existing. I'm reminded of a quote from one of my favorite movies. I'll paraphrase it here. We've been fighting a long time. We are outnumbered by religion, working around the clock without quit. Atheists have a strength that cannot be measured. This is John Connor. If you are listening to this, you are the resistance. I'm not John Connor, but you can follow me at Chairman of Guam on Twitter and check out my free TV show by searching Knoxville Free Thought Forum on YouTube. Give us a like and pass it on. Spreading knowledge is our best weapon. Thank you, and good luck, Subject H. Herd mentalists, grab a copy of this song for a dollar at cdbaby.com slash cd slash godawfulmovies, or check the show notes. Proceeds from the sales are going to help James. Thanks to Noah, Heath, and Eli for making this possible. If you're not listening to those guys, you're more dead to me than Poseidon. Morons, morons and liars, morons.
mistake because God is dead is a sort of a misappropriated quote from Nietzsche, but Nietzsche wasn't addressing God like a like a guy who was sitting on a throne that we killed with a spear, like it was the end of Golden Compass. It was about the idea of God being no longer useful through Nietzsche's view of the world. So while the idea of God being dead is actually incredibly inappropriate, the idea of Christians not understanding the quote about God being dead is actually incredibly apropos because it's about proving a negative, and that's one of the big problems that comes up when you're talking about these kind of things. Is because it's like I claim that you know unicorn exist and you say to me well I think unicorns do exist or don't exist and then I say to you well okay you have to prove to me that unicorns don't exist that's asking me to prove a negative in the same way it's asking someone to prove that God is dead is impossible but because you're the one making the claim in the first place I guess it's really a question of ontology God's not dead he was never alive he was totally created by morons and liars God's not dead he was never alive Totally created by morons and liars Morons, morons, morons and liars Morons, morons, morons and liars Joining me on Skype from somewhere in... Oh, was it Vancouver at last call? Yeah. <laughs> I've got Jamie DeWolf. Hello, sir. Hello, hello. Are you on Twitter? Uh, yes, Jamie DeWolf. Easy to find. Easy to find. Jamie... Even though I don't use Twitter that much, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, well, I'm sure there's plenty of other social media platforms as well you can be tracked down on because you, sir, have a, a, link, a, a list of credentials longer than my arm. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me, film producer, um, actor, singer, songwriter, what are you? I am probably the easiest definition is I'm a performer, producer, filmmaker, and vaudeville showman guy. I kind of do a variety of these things all throughout any, any given month, but I think at the basic, some of the stuff I'm most known for is a show I produce in Oakland once a month called Tourette's Without Regrets, which features... Circus performers and rap battles and burlesque and comedy and fire and carnage and flying meat. And then also I've been a performance poet slash storyteller theater performer for a long time with a trio called the Suicide Kings. And then also completely independently have done a couple of performances with NPR Snap Judgment that have gone all over. And then also I, I write and direct a lot of films and also I'm an independent filmmaker in terms of shooting and directing all kinds of different projects from documentaries to social justice videos to a lot of dark comedies. Um, I have a feature film called Smoked that's out and available on iTunes as well. Yeah, but I'm kind of always doing films and putting on shows and performing in all kinds of crazy shows and, and then also and yet, smashing on Scientology when I can. <laughs> and yet you still find the time to speak with little old me and the little old herd mentalists. <laughs> I can I can find the time. That's right. <laughs> now, this is really how you came to my attention. I mean, mm -hmm. I think writing as a writer, you yourself described writer would you say that runs in the family that was the theory that i ran with ever since i was a kid that was one of the first ways that i remember being really cognizant of who l ron hubbard was at a very young age i was a uh, pretty uh, uh carnivorous when it come came to my library card and uh 
was always in bookstores and and my mom used to joke that she could just let any bookstore be my babysitter because I would just sit in one for hours and that would be often what I would do on on weekends and just read and read and read and you know at a very very young age I was already writing and was aware that L. Ron Hubbard was a fellow writer and it was like you know often encouraged to me when I was young of this phrase of like well it's writing is in your blood and my great aunt Katie, who was also was L. Ron Hubbard Jr.'s sister, and she was also a huge reader. And so I spent a lot of time with her and she would have all kinds of books and fantasy and sci-fi and everything else. So I was always really, really aware that writing was like a thing in my family and that L. Ron Hubbard was kind of the, the pinnacle of that, hilariously enough, um, <laughs> the fact that I could find him in any bookstore. And, and I think there was a hint of apprehension amongst my aunts and uncles that they had this new little redhead scrappy kid who was also really into writing and and wanted to meet his namesake uh (laughs) you've you've alluded to this you've alluded to this now your name is jamie dwarf but you are the great grandson of l ron hubbard chief scientologist writer creator director right (laughs) right so on my yeah my mother's side so there there's um it was L. Ron Hubbard, and then his first child was L. Ron Hubbard Jr., um, and his first child was my mother, and then I was her first child. So it was a pretty direct thing from one to the other, and I think that by being first in a way that there was a lot of different ricochets because of that. Um, Jr. was pretty much left by his father when his father was off running around and conning people out of money and writing science fiction stories, and then... When he started Scientology, there was so much national hype about that and hubbub that Junior was able to find his father pretty easily and sort of joined Scientology at a very, very early point and saw this kind of dark, rapacious nature of his father that I think wasn't really fully on display to his inner circle for some time. And then by having you know, my mother be first, that she was already really well aware that they were being hunted for a lot of their life. And so she tried to raise me, you know, without having to live in that shadow and also without being in danger. Mm -hmm. And then me being the oldest and also being a writer, I started asking a lot of questions that I think were really challenging to my aunts and uncles who (laughs) didn't weren't weren't really too keen to talk about L. Ron Hubbard. Mm -hmm. Because I mean this is a family that had been you know, were being actively stalked by Scientology goons and had journalists, you know, tracking them down. They had Scientology PIs after them all the time. They're getting pictures taken of them alone on playgrounds. They were moving from school to school, from state to state. So this whole you know, story is how I became aware of you. Mm-hmm. And it was done via a YouTube video where yep. you were introduced in, in much the same way you were introduced on this show. And then mm-hmm. you launch into this poetry set to music. Right. Uh, and it's, it's like turning pages of a book and you discuss mm. this. It's, and it's not until part way through the, uh, this track that we discover who you are genetically and mm-hmm. what was happening and how you dug into finding out who your ancestors were, what they'd done. Um, how terrifying that was, Uh, you know, in in part for you for for different reasons, but certainly even much more so for the people who came before you. Right. What's interesting is that so much of this has been a chain reaction of one thing to the other is that even by writing and performing that piece 
that led to a succession of discoveries after that. That story of in itself, which is called The God and the Man, the performance of it that is, is you see on YouTube was the first time that I had ever, I had ever done it. So, I mean, I had written it just maybe a couple days before I performed it. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and what, so, I, what I will do is link that in the show notes. It sure. goes for eight and a half minutes. I yep. strongly recommend going and checking it out. Everyone I've shown it to has said, They've, they've just messaged me or texted me or told me uh, just wow. <laughs> it is such compelling viewing. And it's just you talking in rhyme and, or not necessarily in rhyme on stage set to music. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like a poetic storytelling. It's, it's, that was a show, Snap Judgment, which I performed for um, a few occasions. And I think that was maybe the second time I performed for him. And they had an episode that was on family ties. And I made sort of a half joke about, well, I, I got one hell of a family story for you. <laughs> and they were really encouraging towards it. And I actually warned them against it. I was like, I was like, this is really dangerous. You know, I mean, and, and, and partly I, I didn't know. I had, I had performed against them one time before in 2000 and they came after me right away. Like, I mean, immediately Scientologists were like hunting me down. They were following me everywhere. They had these cover stories that they were lying to people about saying that they were fellow artist collaborators and they wanted to know more about me. I mean, they were just unloading the same toolbox of dirty tricks that they do on everybody. And then I went to Clearwater for the first time. This is all in 2000. I was really young. Um, I was like 21, 22 years old. And when I saw the full enormity of the monster at full strength, I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, to go to Clearwater, which is a city that they've completely devoured, um, to watch all of their Sea Org kids marching around after signing billion-year contracts and signing their soul over to L. Ron Hubbard, marching around in these quasi-military uniforms, getting stalked everywhere, meaning people have lost their entire family and lives and millions of dollars to Scientology and are still like actively at war. I just was like, you know, it was, it was just absolutely staggering in terms of the size and scope and, and how scary it was to tangle with them. And I really realized at that time, I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm, if I'm ready to take this on full, you know, in a full way. And partly is like, I just have always tried to interpret everything I do artistically. And, um, you know, I just like, I just kind of put it to the side and did all kinds of other performances for years and years and years and just didn't even know how to even tackle a subject that large. And that story came about because I really just tried to focus on just the story of a father and a son and, and how that's carried down and, and their war really, which is kind of what defined a lot of my family and defined Scientology in a way itself. And I think the story of, Elron and Elron Jr. hasn't really been fully told because it got really dangerous for Elron in the end because his son was actually trying to flush him out of hiding um, and using lawsuits and, and stuff like that to actually try to prove that he was still alive and also prove that he was sane and get him into a courtroom to, to kind of show his face. And that was incredibly dangerous because a lot of Scientologists at that point were getting indicted. A lot of them, were, um, including Elrond's wife, had been put in jail. And Elrond wasn't trying to come out of the shadows. And so that story in of itself was, it was just something that I just kind of sensed and knew that no one in my family was ever going to go on the record or ever talk about again. That it had caused such destruction to the family that 
uh, I guess it took someone as bizarrely insane as myself to just be like, <laughs> ah, fuck it. I'm going to go tell, I'm going to, I'm going to tell the story because it matters. Well, probably because it, it mattered to me as being a writer and a showman for all these years that I do think that, that it, it, it's absolutely had impact in both, you know, both genetically, but also just like the way that I was raised and the way that I've learned to use charisma and, and power and, and things like that in a, in a much different manner. Um, but I mean, it's really not that much of a difference in terms of the mechanics of what Elron was doing. I mean, he was mostly typing and he was going on stage and performing and his goal was different. It was to manipulate and enslave people basically and give him money. Well, okay. Um, what is Scientology? 25 words or less. Scientology is a pyramid scam that sells secrets and is a pay-as-you-go religion that uses aspects of hypnosis and uh, secret society mentality to basically bleed you dry and enslave you to the mind of L. Ron Hubbard. Mm. <laughs> that is probably not what they would describe it as, but <laughs> that's what I view it as. I yeah. mean, it's a very unique, it's a unique cult in how effective it is in brainwashing people and also the financial toll that it takes on people. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I grew up Christian and I can hand you a Bible and that's an easy financial transaction. I mean, a lot of times I'll even give you the Bible for free. Mm -hmm. And outside of tithing, which most churches, you know, I mean, obviously can push to it a, an abusive way. But I mean, it's it's just nothing comes as close as how aggressive Scientology is in, in taking money. I mean, it's an entire empire yeah. that's, that's just founded um, and fueled by just endless amounts of of cash. cash and i think that they're yeah. I mean, isn't that one of the is indicative of that what'd you say isn't that one of the famous quotes from l ron hubbard the original you know if you want to become really rich you create a religion yes yes he did say that <laughs> he said that he not only said that he said that multiple times that was just like his him sort of griping um, at cocktail parties. Yeah, he was saying that when he was a sci-fi author. That's why it was a remembered quote because he was saying it to other writers. And I think that everyone was really just slack-jawed in the fact that less than 10 years later, he had completely done it. So <laughs> I think that that was, that was why it stuck with people. You know, he was kind of widely viewed as a guy who just talked a lot of shit, you know, mm -hmm. that he told it gang of stories they were all totally ab absurd and the difference was he was always trying to maintain that they were the truth and i think that that's what yeah. also made him stand out is is the fact that he had such audacity to always be trying to convince people this is this is the honest truth i mean the difference is i would say is that i have much more of an allegiance to the truth and that pretty much every story that i've told you know if i'm performing or whatever are, are dead on true and I have a hard time trying to, you know, exaggerate my own feats or make me sound more heroic. In fact, I'd, I'd rather go the opposite way. Mm. You know, if, I, if I'm writing something and, and finding myself coming out to be some sort of heroic character and then it's like that's got to be got to be taken down, um, down some notches. But uh, Elrond did not have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so. Didn't inherit that trait. No, he was not known for his humility. Let's say that. <laughs> and what what's the church currently worth? Uh, billions at this point. Um, the I forget what the last rough estimate, but it was like a billion plus in terms of at least real estate assets on its own. I'm sure that there's all sorts of funds thrown to the winds and offshore accounts and 
And really, that's been one of the, the most difficult things to wrestle with him is the endless amounts of cash mm. that and that they're they're getting slayed in the court of public opinion. Their membership is dwindling. Um, the Internet is just absolutely smashing on them every day. You know, podcasts like this are another nail in their coffin. And in terms of anybody, I mean, really, they sell levels of, of secret knowledge. So when you become a Scientologist, they're not even going to tell you full out what they believe. You don't find out about the evil galactic warlord Xenu and, and um, uh, Zeno, you know, Xenu is one of my favorites. Yeah, he's still alive, too. A lot of people <laughs> always neglect that part. That, that's actually my favorite part of the story is that Zeno is actually still alive imprisoned in a cave somewhere on earth that is a part of it and uh free zeno um <laughs> that <laughs> that you don't oh. learn a lot of that until you know you're way 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 deep and completely yeah. consumed by and, it and you're hundreds of thousands of dollars in and i mean really it, it kind of operates like a really sort of evil video game where you have to keep earning points and grinding it out until you open up a secret level and some of these secret levels take years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to to finally achieve mm. and so that that's been a big part of it is all of that money and all of that all of i mean that the fact that they have all these secret levels and and that you can access them at really a mouse click is profoundly undercutting their entire business plan and they're shifting with it the way that they can where a lot of the people who are getting born into scientology now they are actually grinding out a lot longer on the lower levels where some of these upper levels people could achieve them in you know maybe a couple years now it's like they don't even come close in fact they probably never will because you know i mean it's it's the easiest way to keep people um grinding things out and, and not asking questions is you keep them forever pursuing to somehow get to that next step but <clears throat> it's the money that you know it's the tax exemption it's all that stuff that has been such a huge problem because they have all this real estate. And then with all that money, they don't even have millions of members. It's just that they have the money to absolutely just obliterate so much of their uh, – so much of the – you know any kind of critical thought or action towards mm. them. So, I mean I armies mean, of private <laughs> investigators, entire law firms, uh, the real estate, the endless uh, you know production of, of the latest – shiny glossy new project product and and you know and all of that hiring you know huge pr firms to try to make themselves look better i mean they can afford ads during the super bowl you know what i mean so they're not mm. hurting for money and what's even worse is that the greed is so woven into the dna of it that it's actually started to cannibalize their own members they are constantly squeezing out more money from all of their members and that's causing an internal uh, revolt of people just getting sick of it. So is this uh, is this why we are constantly subjected to new Tom Cruise films? No, that that's just because uh, he's he's one of the biggest movie stars there is. I mean, what's amazing though is is uh, you know, I mean, I I watch Tom Cruise films. I don't care. I mean, I'm I'm aware that I may be you know throwing cash at the devil, but I mean, uh, you know, uh, well, like no, well better- conversely, I mean, you you might also be funding your uh, your inheritance. Right. I mean, surely you're right. in the will. Yeah, right. Um, is that a, <laughs> what, what is interesting is how much he's focusing on these sci-fi films, which, if you understand Scientology theology, is that is is pretty 
dead on to what they actually believe. Some of this stuff like Edge of Tomorrow mm. um, is not that far from what they believe. I mean, Battlefield Earth is actually really close to what they actually believe, that there's sort of like, you know, these evil uh, alien overlords that are kind of implanting people with a version of reality that is not true. I mean, in a way, it's like Scientology has a very much kind of a viewpoint, I guess, um, to paraphrase, close to the Matrix, where reality is not what you think it is, and that there's a nefarious force that has been trying to control our view of reality, but in fact, we're actually godlike beings. And the more money that you pay, you can unlock, you know, these these special powers that you have. And you know, I mean, I, I mean, Tom Cruise is is problematic because. Without some of these celebrities, they would look much more like the rogue, fanatical criminal enterprise that they actually are. Mm. You know, and then by having celebrities, they're able to masquerade, you know, to a face of, of normality. And it's like, you know, some of these celebrities are, are, have been far from normal for a long time. You know, I mean, they, they're not connected to our reality already, but it just adds to the whole sort of celebrity culture of narcissism that they also encourage and that you know america is a sucker for so this is becomes its own toxic tornado they they really do appeal as a as a inverted commas religion to to movie stars it, it's like free advertisements in a sense right who are a few off the top of your head some of your favorites scientology i mean yes yeah, so scientology celebrities the list is is you know, it's it's pretty pretty beat to death. But I mean, you know, Tom Cruise, Josh Volta, Kirstie Alley, Juliet Lewis, Jenna Elfman, uh, the voice of Bart Simpson, that gal, she's pretty passionate. Uh, but then there's also other other celebrities that have left. Carmen um, Llewellyn, Manini, I think, is one left pretty famously. Um, you know, uh, uh, Lisa Presley, who has left but hasn't been public about it because her mom is still in. So I mean, the thing is that even if some of these celebrities leave, they're not going to voice out too much because of the price that they pay and also the Scientology will will really sever you from any connection that you're going to have with your family or anybody on the inside so um, I mean it's it's very cleverly constructed in terms of the price that you know the price that it takes on the toll that it takes this one the toll that it takes on people trying to leave and how much they hold your your own family hostage if there are people still inside and, uh, you know, I mean, like what it's like to to leave yourself from from a cult. So well, I've only really encountered Scientologists twice. I think one mm-hmm. was when they were opening up the Church of Scientology in Sydney and they had the, the film crew out the front. They were filming the front of this, this brilliant new facade and it was all looking beautiful. And uh, I was just at the bus stop, just started asking them lots of questions that they didn't like. <laughs> Right. As soon as they worked out, I was um, interested in facts. Uh, they they lost interest pretty quickly. And the other time, and this is a, a very common, I think, tactic for for recruitment. Mm-hmm. Is, is the Scientologists, they're not really door to door, but they, you'll often at some festivals or or uh, events find this little stand, and it's got this book there. Yeah. By one of your ancestors about Dianetics. Yeah. And they have the machine, which the is the meter. Yes, the e meter. Yeah. Ah, and I got to sit down and get e metered. Yeah. That was great fun. It's just a resistance thing. It sort of measures how, how, 
inverted commas again, how stressed you are when they ask, oh, have you had a bad uh, relationship in the past? At this point, everyone has. (laughs) So, you're meant to tense up, uh, create more resistance, the needle moves. Oh, okay, right. Well, okay, let's explore that. So, it's, it's no different in any to any other religion, the sense that we're trying to determine that you are broken and we can help. It is, it is different though, I would argue, because they have, it has this veneer of science to it. And that's also why I just, I purely, I, I completely reject any of their defense that, oh, we're a religion, you're attacking our religious beliefs, you're a religious bigot. It never started as a religion. It never did. He started it as a science. He wanted to be like some sort of new, new form of science. And that's what it was proposed as, and that's what it was sold as. He only changed it into a religion because he went bankrupt and he had to sell a lot of those trademarks. And then he created a religion to create a, a tax shelter. So he was tax exempt and he couldn't be sued for fraud. And then it, then he was able to make a lot of money doing that because he could protect that money. And under all the rights that religions are afforded. And then he was able to buy back those trademarks and then reincorporate basically as, as a religion. But it never started as a religion. And so, and you even see that with this e-meter and stuff like that. Mm. Is that they, and they even tell you that all religions are welcome, which is total bullshit <laughs> anyways. But they I mean, can't all be they'll right. tell you that. Yeah, they'll tell you that it's, it's, and basically what they sell you is that this is, this is a way to, a form of self-mastery and getting betterment. But I mean, it's the e-meter in of itself because it is this device that they view that, you know, can really read your mind. And not only can it read your mind, but it's that when you go into these trance-like hypnotic states, that it's going to start being able to reach into your past lives and the traumas that have happened upon your whole track in terms of like every time you've incarnated and, and stuff like that. And, and that little fucking machine becomes such an instrument of, of torture because basically it's used for all kinds of interrogations. It becomes psychosomatic because really it's, it is reading like if you're freaking out and then they call it getting on the cans, you know, it's basically these little electrified juice cans connected to a poor man's lie detector is, is basically <laughs> what it is. And a lot of this is invented in like, you know, the fifties mm-hmm. and it has that kind of same cold war kind of crazy interrogation quality to it. And that's why they argue, that's why they fight viciously. So, um, um, against the psychiatric community and, because they basically want to replace psychiatry. That's how they're able to justify uh. why it costs so much, why the sessions cost so much. Mm. Um, they would argue that, you know, why see a Freudian psychiatrist when you can do the great works of, of Scientology? And, and really, in a way, it's that, I think that that's how it was kind of originally sold. It's almost like Elron is like a Freud or a Jung, like he's a well-learned man who's traveled the world and He's distilled all of his discoveries and adventures into this great new body of, of wisdom. Um, and, but as, as you get further involved into it, it becomes progressively stranger and stranger and, and you start getting into this kind of very psychotic cosmology, which they won't even reveal to you at the very first steps. Hmm. You know, you have to learn all of that the hard way through hundreds of thousands of hours of, of sitting in a room with this fucking machine, <laughs> you know, and, reaching back into your cosmic past lives and it's only in the later later top secret upper levels that you actually find out that not only are you going into your past lives but you're also having to give therapy to the um, traumatized alien souls which have been possessing your body 
um, since this alien genocide from 75 million years ago. Wow. And so those things also need therapy and you need to pay thousands of dollars an hour to basically sit with that machine by yourself in a room, basically doing self-hypnosis, giving therapy to these alien souls. And, and that's what they're not going to tell you when they meet you at the fair, you know? And, um, yeah, if you start asking him those hard questions, like they, the sad, tragic thing to me is that like they either don't know, like those people sitting at that at that table, right, that mm. gave you the personality test and the e-meter thing. What's sad is that they either don't know that that's what they actually believe because they haven't gotten to that level yet, mm-hmm. which is actually probably the most likely. Um, and if they did know then it's already built in that they, they're totally fine to lie to you about that because you're not ready to uh, hear that truth. Now, would she, part- would, she, would she have had a minder observing us? So the person doing the test, uh, the testing with the e-meter, would she yeah. have been, had a watcher observing us, keeping an eye on the proceedings? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there's the auditor as the person who's actually doing the session with you. Mm-hmm. And then um, I would imagine my, my biggest guess is a lot of the people that are going to be out there like that are probably members of the sea org which is their inner circle um not the upper levels per se but they're they're the people who signed the billionaire contract and are kind of used as a scientology workforce Mm. and you know they work up to 100 hours a week they get paid like 50 dollars a week um i mean they just they're just constantly grinding it out in the name of scientology so those and and you know i mean uh People think that like I might walk up and like you know fuck with them and and I you know I really don't. It's like I actually feel I feel sorry for them because I I believe that you know the the reason why I smash on you know will and will be as public as I can is that there's a you know so many people that are being just absolutely abused and exploited inside Scientology and and it really needs to stop because. L. Ron Hubbard is dead. You know, his, his game plan and his mission um, was successful in its own, you know, messy way. I mean, he, he died with statues and monuments made to him. His totally fictitious biography has been hammered out into the world. And he died with followers and, and this whole empire and, and millions and millions of dollars. So on that level, he succeeded, but he destroyed a whole lot of people on the way to achieve that. Continues to do so. I mean, where do you see Scientology twenty years, fifty years from now? Uh, that's the scary thing. Is I I don't know. I mean, I know that fifteen years ago, I think that nobody could even predict that we would be where we are now. Um, fifteen years ago, they were absolutely terrifying to go against. I mean, they had been winning for a long time. That people had been put in prison their exposés come out it didn't matter they're still just just crushing their opposition because they're you know instilling such fear and you know and anybody that go against them if you're a reporter all of a sudden they're coming after you they're going through your trash they're you know calling up your ex-girlfriends they're trying to character assassinate you i mean there's a long long path of all of the damage that they've wrecked on people the difference is now is through the dissemination of information the um, communities that are growing rapidly of people who are leaving and also the fact that david miscavige has become a a dictator that does what all dictators do wrong which is you just start abusing power absolutely and you eliminate all opposition and to a point where you know there's no real checks and balances so he's had a lot of people leave in droves at the upper levels and i think that what's really really murky right now is 
much like Elron, he didn't, he's not really leaving a successor. There is no real number two person. Um, I imagine if Dave Miscavige drops dead, has a heart attack, that it's, you know, entirely possible that the power would really go to whoever's controlling the money right now. So maybe that's lawyers who have access to that. Maybe it's the accountants. Maybe it's, it's that because who has access to all those accounts? That's really where the struggle is going to be. The mm. theology is built into the theology that no one can add to it. You know, I mean, L. Ron Hubbard, David Miscavige is not pretending to be L. Ron Hubbard. Mm. <clears throat> um, no one is. They're really maintaining his same vision. So it's possible that if, you know, Miscavige dies, then, uh, you know, someone may take over and, and may actually kind of bring more of a, <laughs> I guess a quote rational eye to some of it, and and <laughs> try fall, to do it like oh, it would fall do over it like wet cardboard if they brought rationality to it. Well, I mean, the issue is is that they're they're running into the problem of it's like you're a huge corporate conglomerate that is selling one product. You are selling L. Ron Hubbard and his writings over and over and over again. The problem is though that you're stuck with those writings. You can't change OT three. That Xenu is part of it. Xenu is always going to be a part of it. And so you would think if someone really wanted to like save Scientology that you would come in and be like, okay, let's, let's really look at this objectively. Like here's our problems with what's happening. You know what I mean? And you would have to stop some of the abuses. You'd have to rename some of your policies so that they don't get attacked as much. But I mean, control and domination is really just built into the whole structure of it. So. I think that they're going to have a hard time recruiting new members. That's why they're branching out hard in other countries, mm -hmm. uh, Russia, Africa. They're also trying to make inroads into really bizarre um, side deals with like the Nation of Islam. They're trying to make inroads. <sighs> Hang um, on. So you're talking about some sort of corporate takeover. I love this idea. It's a bit, a bit like Google buying out a new... <laughs> you know, yeah, someone like the, well, that's, that's the Catholic Church buying with, out Scientology. That's, yeah, that's kind of what happened with uh, with David Miscavige is that he was able to kind of ruthlessly power play his way to the top. He was never really appointed the leader. He just in a power struggle and a in, in a and really quickly in a very rapid and aggressive way was able to kind of consume and take the top role before a lot of people even knew who he was or what was going on. And and because he's not claiming to be uh, the guy, you know, he's just like, hey, I'm just trying to make Scientology run well, you know, then I think mm. people kind of stepped in line. But now it's like his ruthlessness is more bare. And I think it's a really pivotal point in their history as to what's going to happen. I don't know. I mean, what do you do with all that money, all those real estates? Uh, there's a lot of reports of, you know, guns floating around and things like that. They haven't had a history of straight outright violence, but what happens when the empire completely starts to crumble? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, my real hope is that, you know, if the United States finally revoked the tax exemption status, um, that would be a major, major blow. But I think a lot of it is that they're going to maybe try to just hold in there as long as they can and hold on to their members with as much of of a deep grip as they possibly can and we shall see so you know how, where it's going to go how could uh, just your average joe listening to this show be of help to people uh just by by what teaching critical thought preventing new members from joining such a cult uh helping others who are currently well, I, involved I think, get out i think with all all cults 
really is to have to have completely brazen conversation because what's Scientology going to hide behind? They're going to hide behind that I'm a religious bigot, that I'm attacking their sacred beliefs, that their beliefs are protected, and that I'm just being unfair and uh, you know I'm being I'm just being mean spirited basically <laughs> in attacking their sacred beliefs. I don't believe that at all. Of course, I believe that they're part of a financial scam, and I believe that they're getting bled dry by these incredibly uh, sadistic and heartless, you know, policies that were always built into the DNA of it. And I think with all cults, there comes to a point where you have to just simply stop and be like, let's really talk about this. You know, I mean, let's talk about some of these factors and talk about the damage they have. I mean, I grew up as a kid in one of the most, you know, dominant religions on the planet that has cannibalistic rites every Sunday, that there's no feminine force to worship whatsoever in the religion of it, that we are using this, uh, you know, a tribal mentality to also attack the same people who originated the, the religion. You know what I mean? The fact that um, Christians are able to be anti-Semitic is like its own just insane, dark, twisted contradiction in and of itself, you know, and and that these a lot of these forces and these belief systems can become absolutely dangerous. You You have apocalyptic cults that are in positions of power and are, you know, have their fingers on the trigger and are making foreign policy decisions and and are that there's real damage that happens because of this. God help you know us I mean? if uh, Scientology gets to that sort of level. <laughs> I mean, we just had we just had a, a a Mormon, you know, presidential candidate. I think that in 100 years if we had a Scientology candidate that that is exactly the kind of trajectory that they would want. They would want to be on the on the same level of like, look, you you can insult what I believe. I believe what I want to believe, you know, and it's not going to affect We'll what build my a job wall. Is, we'll we'll get know? the Mexicans to do it. It'll keep the Mexicans out. Yeah. <laughs> I have well, a, vi- I mean, I have a I vision. Mean, with, all, with all cults, it's it's that there's always an us versus them. I think it's one of the most successful cornerstones of any cult is that you have to have an other. You have to have another person to attack because they become the the cause of all of your unhappiness, anything that's going wrong in the world that that's what you're out to stop. And whether it's, you know, sinners or the devil or whether it's um, wogs in Scientology world or suppressive persons, SPs, <laughs> or whether it's the godless infidels. And I mean, and that's part of the problem is that once you you have these belief systems that there becomes a, a war mentality, that you're in a constant state of war. You know what I mean? And mm. I think that when you want to view things outside of that, and you're like, all right, well, let's just say, let's just pretend that Dianetics and the Bible are both books written by men. You know what I mean? So let's look at how these books are used by men and women um, throughout history and what has this led to. You know what I mean? Let's mm. look at the positives and let, let's look at the negatives. That is an objective conversation. But if you get into like – if I'm sitting at a panel – and you have a Christian scholar next to like a Scientology OT8, you know, and we're going to argue about which book is more effective. You're not having a regular conversation anymore. You're going to mm-hmm. have like, it's just, this is, it's all propagandist, uh, you know, you mind conf and Dianetics, you know, put them next to each other. It's like books have power, beliefs have power, 
And but just because someone believes something doesn't mean that it is a a sacred, beautiful thing that needs to be protected from any sort of objective, critical thought, <laughs> you know. And uh, I really, it's just it, it, that that is something that is is absolutely just constantly has to be just frustrating to anyone with a skeptical, critical mind. Is that at what point? Does the charade stop? You know, when are you able to pull back the curtain? And you see it happen in our lifetimes, and maybe it'll always happen. You know, mm. maybe that uh, atheist will always be the true minority. Maybe that critical objective thought is always going to hit that wall of people shrugging and say, "Well, everybody's got to believe something." Mm. You know, and I grew up fanatically Christian. I believed absolutely a hundred percent in the oncoming apocalypse that i thought i would see armageddon in my lifetime and you know i talk to jesus every day as is my imaginary friend and would get on my knees and pray to him at night and you know drank the blood and ate the flesh and and really lived that way um for many many years and the way that i got out of it was by learning more about my own family and realizing that religion was totally, you know, contextual, <laughs> that if my family could invent a religion and we did it in less than 50 years ago, really, then what does that mean when you add 2,000 years to a religion or whatever else it is? And there's even more distortion towards it. So that's the fascinating thing about this. You you grew yeah. up fanatically Christian. Your right. your parents, right. how would they, I mean, if you were to describe it, why had they rejected one religion that by for all intents and purposes they probably they would have been right. more likely to have been involved with yeah to, to and, then and go to something most else. of my family is still actually i would argue the majority of my family are incredibly religious they're incredibly christian and that they view that that elron was was a false prophet and that he was kind of the embodiment of evil that he and he did do, you know, black sex magic rites and all of this this craziness early on with his son, with Junior. Um, and that sounds preposterous, but it's absolutely documented, really happened. <laughs> I don't believe in black magic, but I believe that he did. And I think that much like a lot of religious uh, ritual is that it, sometimes it doesn't matter what you believe is what's what's happening. It's the mechanics. It's the mechanics and what is the purpose. Elrond mm. was doing black magic because he wanted power. He wanted power over unseen forces and to be able to use that power over other people and to empower himself to become something larger than life. And ultimately, that is what Scientology does also. Um, you, you don't call it black magic. They call it Scientology. But, I mean, you're offering superpowers in the same way. And but the difference is, is that black magic and Scientology, they both guarantee you these things in this lifetime. You know, they're like, do your rituals now so that you can embody and you can take these powers from, um, you know, forces that are beyond our understanding in this lifetime and actuality. Um, Christianity, it's, it's primarily all upon receipt of death. So it's very convenient in terms of, you know, um, your guarantees. <laughs> but. <laughs> I think that mm. that yeah in my in my family that um uh that's an uncomfortable debate you know and we were talking a little before you even started recording about um sometimes the absolutely traumatic impact that people have in their lives when they make a divorce from the religion that they were brought up in and for me it was a profoundly agonizing period of my life when I was 
a teenager and had grown up so religious and was really asking some hard questions as a Christian. You know, I wasn't, it wasn't like I heard a Motley Crue album and all of a sudden <laughs> Satan took over is that I was asking questions that I really wanted answers to, you know, about Adam and Eve, about Noah's Ark, about, uh, about the Aztecs, about Native Americans. Were they all going to hell before missionaries showed up? I mean, these are fundamental questions that really bothered me. Do all Jews go to hell? You know, that means that Anne Frank is in hell, you mm-hmm. know, because she was born and basically had to live in an attic and no one was able to convert her to Christianity. That means that that was her only chance and now she's burning in hell. You know what I mean? Th- these kinds of questions that were, were profoundly disturbing to me and I had a lot of issues with and I tr- really tried to understand. And I wasn't getting any of those answers that at a certain point people are like, just, you know, it, it's not all going to make sense. Just shut up and, and, and <laughs> deal this with is it. what it is. <laughs> and, and these things really, really bothered me. And, you know, so I started doing a lot of research and asking around and, and, and so on and so forth. And then when it kind of came to a point where, much like people coming out of a cult where I was like, what if all of, what if none of this is true? What if these are all mechanisms of control and that these are used in a larger way to control society that they are written and exercised as uh, positions of power to control the way that we view uh, minorities, the way that we view women, the way that we view how we treat the planet and natural resources, the way we justify our wars, you know, that the Bible itself has been through so many translations at this point by so many different squads and people in power that I think it's hard to argue. Well, I, obviously it is hard to argue, but I mean, to me, I would point <laughs> out that it's clearly been tailored over time to the people that are in power. And because you look about the books that could have been in play that were in the Bible, the fact that you know, originally Jesus in many different earlier versions wasn't actually physically resurrected, that it was just a metaphorical thing. And then when it becomes actual resurrection, that that was a dividing point, and then it becomes more metaphysical and, you know, and just on and on. These kinds of factors that it became a huge, incredibly painful rift between me and my parents. And, you know, my, my mother met my father when they were both in church and they both wanted to become missionaries and you know i could have been born in another country and they could still be working in refugee camps and trying to spread the good word of of the lord and then even when she married my stepdad she met him in church you know and and church is a very dominant thing of a lot of my my early life and that uh the way that religion had, had been such a dominant force in so much of my life and then to learn that my family had created a religion that was still actively destroying people and that my great grandfather was a self-made God who was in hiding by the time I was born, but he was still alive. He was just, (laughs) nobody could find him and he was purposely off the, off the map and that he was, you know, a self-made God who was selling a theology that allowed people to become gods for a price. And then I was handed this other version of a God that was, that was all I knew from when I was, when I was young. And it just became a huge rift um, between me and my, um, you know, my mother in particular, because she had really wanted me to be a, a minister when I was young, and, and in a way, I ended up becoming a very distorted mutant version of that. <laughs> um, I think a circus <laughs> ringmaster is maybe not as far away as I, as we might think, but uh, pretty close. 
You don't you don't get ten percent of the income from everyone who comes to see your shows though. That's uh, no, that would be great. You're better value. Be nice. I don't give you noise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really work. I mean, when you're a performer, you can't tell people that uh, you're just like they pay for the show, they pay for the spectacle. I think if everyone just paid for church, that'd be different. You all come into church and like you'd come to see a show. You're like, I better see some miracles for <laughs> twenty bucks. You know what I mean? Yeah, it'd be a, a bit different. But I'd probably go. Yeah, exactly. They're like, I mean, hey, uh, is that, uh, I mean, in a way, shows have become my church. I mean, it's like my, my religion has become performance and art, and that's what I believe in, and that's what I believe is important. And but that, but that's so similar to, to the way some of these mega churches operate in the States. So, you know, you're John Haggies and particularly Joel Osteen and mm. his shiny, shiny teeth. He, right. he doesn't really, focus on passages from the Bible because, you know, then people might ask hard questions. He just right. talks about God. He just talks about how he's with us, how he, he he's all around us, uh, makes everybody right. feel special. And it's all showmanship. Well, the showmanship is always is always a factor of it. I mean, um, I, I mean I'm not only – I think one of the reasons why um, I had such a connection to L. Ron even when I was younger was – you know, because of the writing thing. But then as I got, I got older and tried to, I wanted to really understand who he truly was. And I feel like a lot of my life is still learning that constantly. There's a lot of people who, you know, I end up talking to off the record or people who actually knew him, traveled with him and, and were, were his disciples. And those conversations are really dangerous to have because some of them don't ever want to talk about him again from the damage that he's done in their life and other people that they, they really witness firsthand the powers of his charisma and so forth, but there's so much showmanship involved in it. I mean, like Jim Jones, you know, a lot of what I've, I've studied a whole lot of different other cult leaders and Jim Jones was a total ham. You know, I mean, he was a total vaudeville huckster. I mean, they would do stuff with, you know, having his inner circle, you know, put themselves in blackface and like put it into disguise and rolling in a wheelchair and like jump up and dance and fake healings. And, and they were doing this stuff all the way up until Jonestown. I mean, it's like he would do this constantly. And some of his inner circle even knew that they were just cheap tricks, but that he would explain to them, well, the real tricks, you know, they're, they can be really exhausting from my soul. So every now and then we have to throw something together just to like, you know, Spice show people the true power of it. And I think that that's kind of how a lot of these things always have worked, that there's like a, a really elite inner inner circle that feel that the ends justify the means, that that they may have to do a little bit of fakery, a little bit of showmanship in order to really illustrate the full and larger point, which is, you know, some of what Jim Jones was trying to illustrate was that like before Jonestown, he did have some very positive ideas about racial equality. He fought a lot for that. You know, that was a big, big factor in the success of the People's Temple for so for so long. And even the whole Kool-Aid thing, that started off as a weird show of allegiance. They practiced that. You know what I mean? They would have practice suicide drills where they would all drink this Kool-Aid. Uh, and Well, actually, it wasn't Kool-Aid. It was another. I'm sure Kool-Aid is very bitter about that it became Kool-Aid, but it was like, <laughs> Lime, or it was like some other kind of actual product. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> that, uh, but they did practice runs of this where they would all drink this fluid and then, like, he would announce to all of them after that, like, it was all laced with poison and everyone has an out. You'll all be dead within the hour. And basically, like, how do you feel? Are you still glad that you devoted yourself to me? You know, et cetera. Mm. And then at the end of that hour, then he's like, okay, you've all passed the test. But they have been doing these drills for a while. 
And so, but there was still this, this almost like carnival, bad circus trick from back in the day that they would still be using on their members. And I think that, you know, there's still, there's still always attributes to that, whatever it is. I mean, to me, it comes down to like, I feel like when I go to, you know, a lot of church services or whatever that, you know, occasionally I've gone to them, it's just straight research on how to do like fun circus, <laughs> stuff, you know, cause you're like, cause people like ritual. They like community. Mm. They like, you know, these, these, entertainment. Uh, they like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Just be, okay. So let's head towards that because you're an entertainer. Where uh, are you currently? What have you got coming up? Where can people see you? Uh, well, right now I am in Vancouver, Canada, <laughs> and I'm hosting a, a show of burlesque and circus performances tonight at the Rio Theater with a circus collective that I perform with sometimes called Foo Foo Ha. Um, and I'm doing that tonight, tomorrow night, and then on next weekend, we are doing our notorious Game of Thrones live show, Oof. which is uh, we take this whole insane renegade vaudeville aspect to uh, the Game of Thrones universe and do it with burlesque and comedy and slam poetry and huge sword battles and lots of blood. And, and it's totally audience interactive. So one half of the audience is versus the other half. And they actually change the ending of the show by their various decisions and contests and how that goes down. So I do that. And then also I run Tourette's without regrets, which is once a month in Oakland. And there's a lot of other stuff I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Oh, okay. We've got me. the minders keeping an eye on you. So if we, yeah, if we, if we me, headed to be really busy, but there should be some pretty <laughs> explosive stuff coming down the line for sure. You and I have spoken area of cults i also have um you know i i'm put on before but would love to do in some other uh venue as the uh the holy shit game show which is a, a total interactive wild vaudeville sort of circus where the audience battles for their very souls um and uh that's a lot of fun so <laughs> l ron hubbard like is a recurring <laughs> he's on stage as a character the whole show and i never let him speak because i keep telling him he's he's said enough <laughs> but we can find out more at Jamie DeWolf, D-E-W-O-L-F dot com. Yeah, that's right. Jamie, that's right. thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed hearing yeah, more no about problem. it. Yeah, no problem. You just scratch the surface. So let me know if you want to talk again. Oh, I'm fairly confident we will. <laughs> All right. You take care, sir. Okay, thanks. Talk to you later. Bird mentalists, hear me. Oh, it feels good to hit 100. We've been able to achieve some wonderful stuff together, and it's all because you've listened and supported in one way or another. As you know, 10% of the proceeds from this show go to women in developing countries to further their education. This episode, we've helped Karine, Goha, Salvanaz, and Suzanna in Armenia, as well as Mona and Jamila in Lebanon. You can support the show at patreon.com slash herdmentality. It's easy to sign up and you can control exactly how much you want to contribute per episode. So a special thanks to Mark, Elizabeth, John, Angelo, Edward, Eric, Matthew, Phil and Anne who have helped make producing the show more sustainable. I'm looking forward to the next 100. Hopefully they'll be good and I'll see you there. Take care. Yes. <laughs>